Everybody doing okay? I'm not convinced at all. How's school? School's good? School's not good? School is school. I agree with that. How about y'all? How's school? You know, on a scale of thumbs down to thumbs up, somewhere in there, kind of on the thumbs down side of the spectrum. I understand that. Um, yeah, it's been a long time since I went to school, and uh, I don't miss it, I'm just going to be honest. But I do like learning, but that's a separate issue. Um, okay, so as Joe said, tonight we are in the book of Romans, and if you did not already know that, I'm going to give you a little pro tip. At the front of your Bible, there's a little table of contents, kind of gives you the order of the books, and so y'all can know already what book's coming next week if you check that out. So, you know, like I said, just a little pro tip. Um, before we jump in, can anyone tell me anything about the book of Romans? Anything at all? Paul wrote it. Paul wrote it. It's very good. What else? It was written to the Romans. It's very astute, yeah. hence the name, right? Anything else? Was it just written to all Romans? Just Romans in general? The Roman Church. The Roman Church. Okay, cool, cool. I appreciate that. Yeah, so as Aiden said, this is a, um, the book of Romans is an epistle, and that term epistle just means it was a letter that Paul wrote. Um, so if you hear somebody talking about Paul's epistles or John's epistles, or the epistle to the Galatians, it's just a fancy way of saying that the letter that somebody wrote to a particular people group, right? So the book of Ephesians is an epistle of Paul. It's a letter of Paul written to the church in Ephesus. And the book of Romans is, in a, is a letter which is written by Paul to the church in Rome. And it was likely written around 56 or 57 AD. Um, there's not really a whole lot of um, definitive consensus as far as what the exact dating is, but they kind of dated around that time frame. Um, and it was written while Paul was uh, in Corinth on his third missionary journey. And you can actually look at uh, Acts chapter 18 um, to read more about Paul and his time in Corinth while he was on that missionary journey. Now, one of the things that separates the book of Romans from the other letters that Paul wrote is uh, the fact that Paul is writing this letter to a church that he himself did not plant. So when Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians, right, which we'll be in next week, Paul wrote, is writing to a church that he himself planted while he was on one of his missionary journeys. Uh, but he himself did not actually plant the church in Rome. Uh, rather, um, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, right, we read about the day of Pentecost. And we read that as the apostles were, were filled with the Holy Spirit, um, men began to hear the mighty works of God in their own languages. And specifically, we read that there's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. And it's believed that these visitors from Rome came to Jerusalem and on the day of Pentecost, right, as Peter is delivering his sermon, they were actually born again and when they went back to Rome, they actually were the ones who planted this church. Now that's not 100% definitive, like I say. That's just kind of some speculation. Uh, but I do find that interesting, that the church of Rome was planted by people who were born again by the Spirit of God through the preaching of the apostles, which is true of all of the churches. And the fact is, is that us here today, we are here because we've been born again through the teaching of the apostles that's written down for us in the Bible. Um, and so um, one of the things that's interesting about this book is that although it appears first in our New Testament, this is not actually the first letter that Paul uh, wrote. But it is his longest letter, and it's also his most systematically organized uh, letter. A lot of the letters that Paul wrote were um, written to address specific issues that were taking place in the churches that he was writing to. Um, again, for instance, the book of 1 Corinthians, he's addressing a lot of issues that the church in Corinth had, and he's giving them instruction on how to correct those issues. Um, but the book of Romans, instead, is not necessarily uh, written to address specific issues, although there are some specific issues addressed. Uh, rather, it's a more uh, robust and thorough exposition of what the gospel actually um, is. And so um, one of my favorite commentators is a guy named Matthew Henry. And just a real quick background on Matthew Henry. Uh, Matthew Henry was a British nonconformist minister, and he lived between 1662 and 17. 14, right? So he's old and also dead. Um, now, the nonconformist label, right? He's referred to as a nonconformist. Uh, that was a label used to identify certain Christians, certain Protestant Christians, um, who did not conform to the governance of the established state church of England, otherwise known as the Anglican church. 
So Matthew Henry rejected the legitimacy of the state church and actually sought to govern his church according to what he believed the Bible actually laid out. Um, and Matthew Henry wrote a six-volume commentary on the entire Bible. And it is absolutely um, fantastic. I actually purchased a copy of his commentary not too long ago. Um, and this particular edition was published sometime in the 1900s. They don't even have a date on it. It's that old. And so I'm very excited about it. Um, but like I say, it's a fantastic commentary. And in fact, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great Baptist uh, Puritan preacher, uh, he said that every, every pastor should read this commentary in its entirety and thoroughly at least once. Um, and so that just goes to show how much he revered this particular commentary. Um, and so I commend this commentary to you. The reason I'm mentioning it to you um, right now is because um, I, uh, I pulled a lot from Matthew Henry's commentary in my preparation for tonight. And the reason I wanted to mention him to y'all is because I don't want y'all to think that the tools necessary to understand what the Bible says, I don't want you to think that those tools are outside of your reach. Um, uh, you can actually find Matthew Henry's commentary online for free. You can get a concise version of his commentary, typically on any Bible app. So if you use like YouVersion or Olive Tree, typically they'll have Matthew Henry's concise Bible commentary available for free. So you can look at it as you're reading your Bible on your phone or on your iPad or laptop or, or what have you. Um, but like I said, all of these tools are available for you. And we have so much, so much access to knowledge and to good and true knowledge. Um, and, and, and like I say, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And myself included, right? I'm one of the pastors here. I'm one of your pastors. Um, but I'm just like you in the sense that I need to read and consult those who have gone before me, such as Matthew Henry. And honestly, between a good commentary and a good study Bible, you can pretty much get all that you need to know about what the Word of God says. In fact, a lot of the material that at least I present to you is coming from things that I've read in a really good study Bible or a really good commentary, usually Matthew Henry's commentary or the ESV study Bible. Sometimes I'll use Reformation study Bible. That's also a very good one. Um, but anyways, enough about, uh, enough about that. Like I said, uh, Matthew Henry's kind of my go-to guy. Um, and, and I'm pulling a lot from his commentary. And one of the things I appreciate about the way he laid out the book of Romans in his commentary is that he split it up into two parts. Um, part one, which covers chapters one through chapter 11, uh, is primarily doctrinal in nature. Uh, in this uh, section, in part one, Paul is laying out the doctrine of the gospel. And he's laying out this doctrine, starting from man's depravity, going all the way through God's sovereign choice and election, and even answering the question as to why Gentiles have been included in God's plan of salvation. And then in part two, right, which is the second part, uh, the second half covering chapters 12 through 16, uh, uh, the second part, part two, is primarily practical in nature. He goes from giving you doctrine to giving you some application, right? So I'm laying out this doctrine for you. I'm telling you sort of how the gospel works, and then I'm going to tell you what it means for you, what you're supposed to do with it. And he gives several exhortations to Christians uh, concerning basic Christian conduct, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves as Christians, um, how Christians ought to act as citizens of a society, and also how Christians ought to act as members of Christ's church towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so with that, we're going to walk through uh, the book of Romans. This is kind of how we're going to do it tonight. We're going to walk through the book of Romans chapter by chapter and kind of give a brief summary of Paul's arguments in this book. Now, as we get into the book of Romans, one thing to keep in mind is that, like I said, this book is a letter, and it's intended to be read as such. Um, in other words, we can't isolate a verse or a chapter from the rest of the book and understand it properly. We have to understand it in its context. The context that it's taking place in is in the letter as a whole. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to the Bible, pe people like to do that, right? They like to take one chapter, and they like to separate it from the rest of the book, and they like to read it, and they like to come up with their own idea of what it means, and it's completely divorced from what actually the rest of the book says. But the fact of the matter is, is we don't do that with any other book. Or we don't do that really with any other type of writing. You know what I mean? Like imagine you wrote a letter and it was a long letter. Let's say it was four pages long. And someone took like a section of like three or four sentences and they took it out of the letter and they said, um, you know, so-and-so is this type of person based on this portion of these three sentences. We'd be like, well, I didn't just send you three sentences. I sent you four pages of a letter, right? You're supposed to understand all of this in the context of the whole letter. Or let's, let's 
not think about a letter, but let's think about it like a novel, right? Do y'all know who J.R.R. Tolkien is? Have y'all heard of Lord of the Rings? Yeah, famous uh, a book series. Uh, imagine somebody took like a chapter out of one of his books and just took it out of the book and tried to say that like J.R.R. Tolkien was a nut. You know, I, I, read this, I read this section of his writings where he's talking about hobbits. I don't even know what that is and elves and rings and all sorts of craziness. Uh, you know, dragons. And, yeah, the, the dude was clearly insane, right? Well, if we did that, that would be unfair to J.R.R. Tolkien, right? Because the chapter we're, we're referencing takes place in a book that has a particular context, right? It's a novel. It's a fiction book. And so to understand that chapter separate from the rest of the book makes absolutely no sense. And it's, it's the same thing when it comes to the book of Romans. If we're going to understand the book of Romans, we have to understand it as a whole. Now, we can isolate sentences, we can isolate verses, we can isolate chapters and try to understand those chapters on their own, but they have to be understood first and foremost in the context of the, of the whole. Does that make sense? Yes, no, maybe? Okay. So, with that, um, let's go ahead and, and jump into it. And so, Paul starts in chapter 1 with an introduction. If you read in verse 1, he says, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was des uh, descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God. In power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he kind of gives an introduction, says, yes, this is me, this is Paul, I'm writing this letter to you, and I'm writing this letter to you to tell you about the gospel. And when we get to verses 16 and 17, we kind of get really the overarching theme of the whole book. Does somebody want to read verses 16 and 17, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 for us? Go ahead. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Awesome. So verse 16, right, is one of my favorite verses, or at least it's one of my most often quoted verses. I think in every Sunday sermon I've preached here at this church, I've quoted that verse at least once. Usually I quote it multiple times. But that verse is simple, right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so what's the point of Paul's letter? The point of Paul's letter is the gospel, right? Because the gospel is what God uses to save sinners. And not only that, um, we also see that uh, uh, it is only through faith that people are saved, right? In Romans 1, 17, he says, um, he says, for what can, or excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so one of the things he's laying out right there at the beginning is that it's not the ethnic ties that you have to Abraham, right? He's writing to the church in Rome, and the church in Rome is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And one of the things he's trying to lay out is that it's not your ethnic ties to Abraham that brings salvation, it, but it is exclusively through faith. And this is the theme that Paul will continue to hit on throughout the letter. Because faith is the only means of salvation, that means that salvation comes to all those who have faith, regardless of their ethnicity. So, if ethnic, uh, if ethnic ties to Abraham, right, if you had to be a Jew to be saved, was, if that was what was required, you had to be a Jew, um, then only Jews could be saved, right? There'd be no point in writing to Gentiles about the gospel, because they can't be saved, you have to be Jewish. But that's not the case. Only those who have faith will be saved. And that's the only way people are saved. So it's not by your ethnicity. Um, it's also not by certain works, right? If certain works were required, then faith would be good, right? It'd be a good thing to have faith in God, but it would be insufficient because you'd have to add something else. No, Paul is laying out, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's it. It's only by faith. And so Paul lays out the theme of this book, and then he dives right into his explanation of the gospel. And he starts with man's depravity. Now, if you spend any time around this church, you should have heard us mention Romans 1 on multiple occasions. Um, in fact, I actually uh, gave a message to the students uh, back in 2020 from Romans 1.18 through um, 32. And so, if you're interested in checking that out, you know, shameless plug, go check out our YouTube channel. But at any rate, we've covered, covered this several times. The reason he starts with man's depravity is because if you want to understand the good news, you first have to understand the bad news. 
And what is the bad news? What is the problem? Well, he starts in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and the animals and creeping things. So what's the problem? The problem is that mankind, all of mankind, were sinners. That's the problem. That's the bad news. The bad news is that we, although we know God, right, although we know God, we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. We choose our sins so that we can suppress the truth of God that we know, right? And it says that this knowledge of God is not some sort of arbitrary knowledge or abstract knowledge, right? A lot of people will sort of give credence to like, well, there's a higher, you know, I, I believe in a higher power. Well, that's not what he's talking about. Right? He's not talking about like everybody knows that there's some sort of higher power. But specifically, he says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So all of creation is testifying to us as to who God is. And we need to keep in mind, too, that we are part of that creation. So our very existence, along with the rest of creation, is testifying to us that God is sovereign, that God is God, that he is the creator, that he is worthy of our worship. But what do we do? We suppress it in sin. We suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. And this is true of all mankind. You know, sometimes um, when speaking about the gospel and speaking about salvation, people will ask questions like, well, what about the remote tribe? You know, that ancient tribe that never heard the name of Jesus. Are they going to be sent to hell? Well, Romans 1 tells us that absolutely, yes, they will. Apart from Christ, they will be sent to hell. And immediately, you know, initially we think, well, that seems unfair, right? They didn't even know. How, how were they supposed to know that they were supposed to trust in Jesus? Well, Scripture tells us that they have sufficient knowledge of God. They know who God is, and they know that he is God and that he is worthy of our worship. But what do they do? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They choose their sin over the worship of the one true and living God. And it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks. Right? And it says that they have this knowledge, and so much so that they are without excuse. Right? So it's not as though anybody will stand before God one day and go, well, hey, I just didn't know. I had no idea I was supposed to worship Jesus. He says, no, there is no excuse. You did know. But what did you do? You suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. So Paul lays out the problem for us. And as we move into chapters 2 and 3, he begins to explain God's justice in judging the sinner. Now, as I mentioned, the church in Rome was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And one of Paul's chief concerns was the unity of the body despite their ethnic differences. And as Paul begins digging into the mechanics of the gospel, he is being clear that both Jew and Gentile are united in sin through their father, Adam. In verses 11 and 12, we read uh, of chapter 2, we read, For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged under the law. One of the things that the Jews had separate from the rest of the world was they had God's law given to them through Moses. And uh, Paul makes clear uh, later on in Romans that it's, it's the law that actually reveals our sin, right? The law shows us who God is. It reveals to us his character. And it, by revealing to us God's character, it exposes the fact that we do not rightly image God's character. We do not rightly reflect his character. And so we're sinners. It identifies our sin and reveals our sin to us. And so the question is, well, if people don't have the law, how do they know they're sinners? Right? So technically God can't judge them because they didn't have the law. But what, is, what, what does Paul tell us, right? In verse 11, God shows no partiality. So whether you have the law or not, if you're a sinner, God's going to judge your sin. And specifically, he says, for those who have sinned without the law, they will also perish without the law. And like I said, you have a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles, and there's going to be a temptation Right? There's going to be a temptation for the Jews to go, whoo, well, yeah, don't have the law. You're going to perish without the law. Well, that means we're good. We've got the law, right? It kind of stinks to be you guys, but hey, we've got the law, so we're good, right? We're not going to perish without the law. 
But then what he did, he turns around and he goes, uh, and all who have sinned under the law, well, you're going to be judged by the law. So the Gentiles can't say, well, we didn't have the law, so we didn't know. Well, hey, you didn't have the law, you're going to perish without the law. And the Jews can't say, well, we had the law, so we're good. He says, no, you have the law, you're going to be judged by that same law. And there's almost an application here for people who grow up in Christian homes, for people who attend church, and yet they're not truly saved, right? Some, if you are under the sound preaching, right? If you, if you attend this church and you're under the sound preaching of God's word, you're going to be held accountable to that word. God has given you his words so that you might know who he is and so that you might uh, confess your sins, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And you're going to be held accountable for the knowledge that you've been given in the same way that the Israelites were held accountable for the fact that they had the law and they should have known better. And even for those who don't grow up in church, right? For those who aren't exposed to the teaching of God's word, well, they too will perish apart from the law in their sin because God shows no partiality. And so whether you're exposed to the law or not, whether you're exposed to the word of God or not, whether you're exposed to the gospel or not, God is coming to judge sin. And as he moves on into, um, um, into chapter 3, he uh, again begins to reiterate the fact, right, that no one seeks for God. Specifically, we read in verses uh, 10 through 18, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside together and have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the condition of all of mankind. All of mankind, both Jew and Gentile alike both American and European alike, both black and both white alike. The fact of the matter is, is that apart from Christ, no one does good. No one seeks for God. What do we do? What is our natural, what is our natural instinct to do? Our natural instinct is, to, is not to seek after God. It's to suppress the knowledge of God in our sin and unrighteousness. And as he moves on into chapter 3, um, he explains that it is only by grace that we will be saved. Specifically, in verses 23 through 25, he said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. So he starts kind of hinting at the good news, right? He's not quite fully into the good news just yet, but he's hinting at the good news. All men are sinners. All men suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. All men are God-haters. No one is righteous. No, one, no, not one. No one seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But although all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace. And that grace is a gift through the redemption that was accomplished in Christ Jesus. So he starts hinting at the good news. And as he moves into chapter 4, Paul starts to drill down on the fact that salvation has always been through faith. Right? The Jews thought that they were saved because they were Abraham's children. They thought, well, our father, Abraham, God made a covenant with him and we're his children, so we're good. We don't have to worry about anything. I'm a child of Abraham. But the fact of the matter is, is that Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham had faith and it was credited to him. As righteousness. And that's what he tells us in, verse, uh, in verses 3 and 4. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The great patriarch Abraham was justified by faith. And the promise of salvation was extended to all of those who were the children of Abraham by faith. So we have the ethnic sons of Abraham, right, who are the Jews. Um, and we have the true sons of Abraham who are his children by faith. And the book of Galatians, if you want to go and, and check out the book of Galatians, he really kind of expounds on this idea when he talks about Sarah and Hagar. But the thing you need to remember is that Abraham actually had two sons. Abraham had Ishmael, and he also had Isaac. Both were ethnic sons of Abraham. 
but only one was a child, was considered a true son because he was the son born of promise by the Spirit. And so the true son of Abraham is not the one, right, who has the same blood as Abraham, who can trace his lineage to Abraham because Ishmael could, but he was not counted as a true son. Why? Because he was not a son of promise born by the Spirit. The true sons of Abraham are those who have been born by the Spirit. And that's why we sing Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. And all those who have faith in Jesus Christ, they are too. And that's why we praise the Lord, right? Because salvation comes by faith. So by faith, the children of Abraham will be saved. And there is no other means of salvation. It is only by faith. And if you're trusting in anything else, if the Jews were trusting in anything else, they would not be saved. Abraham himself did not, Abraham didn't do anything good. And this is one of the interesting things, right? So they think, well, because I'm a child of Abraham, I'm good, right? I've got his blood pumping in my veins. But how was Abraham saved? Abraham was saved by faith. So why do we think we'll be saved in any other way but by faith? So he lays out that salvation is by faith and only by faith. As we move into chapter 5, Paul starts getting to the good news, right? He starts specifically hitting on the good news. And the good news is, we read it right there in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Were it up to us, were salvation up to us and our choices and the things that we do, we would continually lose our salvation. And because of that, we would be in this continual state of trying to uh, earn our way back into God's favor. And we would never truly have peace and security because we constantly have to be doing something else to earn God's favor back. And the fact of the matter is there's nothing we could really do to earn God's favor back. But because of what Christ did, we can have peace with God through faith. And as we move uh, into the chapter, one of the things he starts to lay out is the true distinction, right? Um, for the longest time throughout uh, Israel's history, they thought that the distinction was between those who were Jews and those who were not. But the true distinction is not between the Jews and everyone else. The true distinction is between those who are in their father, Adam, and who are in their father or, or who have been saved and are now in the second Adam, which is Christ. And so in verses um, 18 through 21, we read, Therefore, as one trespass, right, Adam's trespass, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, it's important to stop here and to recognize that Paul here is not arguing for universalism, right, which means that it doesn't matter what you do, everybody's going to be saved in the end anyways, right? There's no hell, there's no, there's no wrath of God, there's no eternal punishment, everybody's just going to be saved, right? And... On the surface, that kind of sounds like what he's saying, right? Through one man, through Adam, through one trespass, was condemnation. So through one act of righteousness, which is Christ, one act of righteousness, there's justification in life for all men. So what's he saying here? Is he saying that all men, regardless of what they do, all men will be saved everywhere, you know, without exception? Well, no, he's not. And we know this from the rest of Scripture. But right here, Paul is not saying that um, justification and faith and salvation is extended to all men without exception but it's to all men without distinction. The point that he's making is that there is no people group that is outside the reach of the gospel. So it's not as though, well, the Gentiles, well, they're not Jews, so they can't be saved. Well, no, 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 no. The gospel is going to all men. Salvation is going to all men, to all kinds of men, all men without distinction. So that means Gentiles will be saved as well as Jews. That means blacks will be saved as well as whites. That means Americans will be saved as well as the Chinese. The gospel will go and it will have success in every people group. There's no people group that is outside the reach of the gospel. And as he moves on, he says, For by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came, into in, uh, came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as he moves into chapter 6, and chapter 6 is actually one of my favorite chapters, Paul starts by explaining that though our sins are many, his grace and his mercy is so much more. Right? And that's what he just said. He said, uh, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
as he closed out chapter 5. And he begins with a question. Well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's a, I mean, that's a fair question, right? If we continue sinning and God continues to give grace, well, then we should just continue sinning so that God will give us more grace, right? Seems like a reasonable thought. But how does Paul answer the question? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So although God's grace is more, right? Although God's grace covers a multitude of sins, despite the fact that God's grace, right, will be wholly sufficient to cover every sin that his people will commit, that doesn't give us a license to sin. If we have been saved, then we have been, um, then we have been raised to new life with Christ, and we have, been, we have died to sin. So if, out, so if we die to sin, how can we continue to live in sin? And if we're continuing to live in sin, that begs the question, have we actually truly died to sin? And so in verses uh, 16 through 18, we read, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient um, slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So Paul is making clear, if you present yourself as a slave, right? If I'm a slave... And let's say, um, let's say I said, I am Joe's slave, but I don't obey Joe. I'm disobedient to Joe. Instead, I obey Chloe. Who am I actually a slave to? You're a slave to the one that you obey. So if you are obeying sin, if you're obeying your sin nature, it doesn't matter what you say, right? You can say, oh, no, I love Jesus. No, I'm a slave to Jesus, but I keep presenting myself as obedient to sin. Am I truly a slave to Jesus? Am I truly a slave to righteousness? Or am I a slave to sin? What do y'all think? Right, yeah, you're a slave to sin. Right, so you're a slave to the thing that you obey. Right, if I, I can say, I can say till the cows come home, I'm Joe's slave. But if I disobey Joe and I obey somebody else, well, I'm not Joe's slave, I'm a slave to whoever I'm obedient to. And that's what he makes clear. Right? If you present yourself as a slave, you are a slave to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And in verse 17, I love this. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were commanded. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. So we know that which, whoever you're obedient to, right, is who you're actually a slave to. So if you're obedient to your sin... You're a slave to sin. But in verse 17, Paul's making clear, so, but it's not quite as simple as outward conformity to the law, right? Because I can put on a good show and make it look like I'm a good guy, right? All the while, I'm actually a depraved wretch. But what does he say? He says, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. So it's not simply about outward conformity to the law. It's not simply about just doing the right things. It's about obedience from the heart which springs from faith, which is the gift of God's grace. And so moving on into chapter 7, Paul lays out the, the relationship of the believer to the law. And although the law is still good, right, because God is good, right? The, the, God is good, and so his law is good. His law reflects who he is. It reflects his character. Um, although the law is still good, the reality is that we are not... Um, we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. And that's what he lays out in these uh, first beginning verses of chapter 7. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking of those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person so long as he lives. And he begins to use this analogy of a married person, right? Um, a, a, a person who is in the covenant of marriage is bound by that covenant until somebody dies, right? So let's say you had... Um, let's say you had a woman who was married to somebody and then she goes and marries somebody else, right? What do we call that? What do we call that? If I'm married, I'm married to Katie. If I go and marry somebody else too, what do we call that? Huh? Adultery, right? I'm married to one person. So I'm bound by that, that marriage covenant. Now, but if the wife dies, right, if the husband dies, 
Well, then they're released from that covenant. And the point, the reason he's laying this out is because, because Christ died to the law, because Christ died, he suffered the condemnation of the law. If we are in Christ, then we too have been released from the bondage, from the condemnation of the law. And so the law says that sinners ought to be punished. But if Christ has already suffered that penalty for us, then we're free. We're free from that condemnation. Now, although he says we're free from that condemnation, uh, this does not mean that the law is no longer good or that the, the law is simply null and void. And he spells this out more fully in, starting in verse 7. Right? He asks the question, well, what shall we say then? Shall we say that the law is sin? Again, he says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to cover, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And he says, for sin, right, going down to verse 11, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it, it killed me. But, right, he says in verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he says, we're no, longer under, it, it, we're no longer enslaved to the law. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. But is that, that does not mean that the law is no longer good. No, he says the law is holy. And the commandment is holy, and it's righteous and good. The issue is not the law. The issue is sin. Right? The law is good because God is good. The issue is not, okay, well, we don't have to, we don't have to walk in obedience anymore, right? Oh, well, we can just forget about the law because we're not under the law. We're under grace. No, he says the law is good. The issue is not the law. The issue is sin, right? Sin seizing an opportunity through the law, through the commandments. It deceived us. And it kills us. Because it, in our sin nature, right, we think we can accomplish salvation on our own. And we think that if I can just be obedient enough, if I can just do the right thing, well, then I can earn my own salvation, right? That's sin seizing an opportunity through the law. Right? The law is supposed to show us that there's no way, there is no way for us to reach God. There is no way for us to rightly reflect who God is. But sin seizing an opportunity, what does it do? Oh no, you can do it. Just obey harder. Just try harder. Just do it harder. And you can, get, you can do it. The fact is we can't do it. And that's what the law is intended to show us, is that we can't do it. But again, like I said, even though we're released from the condemnation of the law, that does not mean the, is, the law is null and void. No, the law is good. The law is righteous. The law is holy. And so as Paul moves into chapter, um, after chapter 8, he begins to uh, expound on the reality of our life with Christ um, through our union with Christ, our life in the Spirit through our union with Christ. He starts by identifying the person and work of Christ as the means of our salvation. If you read it in those first four verses, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, which was weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to Uh, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what, it, so what does it mean, right? So we've been put to death by the law. We've been put to death by the law because of the person and work of Christ. Now, when we say person and work of Christ, we're talking about who Christ is, but not just who he is, also what he did, right? Who is Christ? Christ is the second person of the Trinity. Christ is God himself, God incarnate. So, but it's not just who he is, it's what he came to do. Although he was God, Right? And he enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father. He took on flesh himself, and he came down, and he suffered the penalty that we deserved. And so because he suffered our penalty, we're now free from the penalty that we should have had. Right? The wages of sin is death. Our sin deserves, means that we should die. But because Christ died on our behalf, we've been set free from the law of sin and death. And he goes on to say in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption 
as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so now we have this new life in the Spirit because of what Christ has done. Because of the person and work of Christ, now we don't live according to the flesh. We don't live according to our sinful nature. No, we live according to the Spirit, which has been given to us through Christ. And in verses um, 28 through 30, um, we read of what's referred to often as the golden chain of redemption. Starting in verse 28, we read, uh, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, also glorified. So we have this new life in the Spirit. And we not only have life now, but we also have a hope. We also have a, a future of glorification with Christ. So those who God saves, right? We know that all things work together. So for those who have been given God's Spirit, all things work together for good. And that's an encouraging thing because I don't know about y'all, but I've experienced a lot of bad stuff in my life. Some of it was my own doing. Some of it was the doing of others. But the fact of the matter is, is that regardless of what happens, for those who are in Christ, God is working all things out for our good and for his glory. And he tells us that it's not just life now, but those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this life in the spirit has a telos. It has somewhere that it's going, right? It has an eschatology. There's, there's, a, there's a big $5 word for you. But it's going somewhere. What's going to happen for those who have life in the spirit? Well, they are going to be glorified together with Christ. So it's not just we have, that we have something great in the here and now. But we have a future. We, have, we get to look forward to the hope of the future of glorification with Christ. And so going from chapter 8 to chapter 9, Paul, Paul starts to transition from the general to the specific. And specifically, he is explaining why all of Israel is not saved. And yet, why some Gentiles are in fact saved. And although he's using these specific categories to really kick off this discussion, uh, this application applies to all men. Right? Why are some Jews saved and not other Jews saved? By extension, why, why are some saved and not others? Right? Why did God save me, but not save one of my family members? Why did God choose to save one of my friends, but not my other friend? All of these questions are answered here in this chapter. And specifically in verses 6 through 8, we read, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So why are some Jews not saved? Why is not all of Israel saved? Well, because it's not whether or not your father was Abraham. It's only those who are children of promise by faith. And the question is, right, because God made a lot of promises to Israel. Um, plan, you know, I'm reminded of Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I have plans for you, good plans for you, plans to prosper you and give you hope and a future. And so if there's portions of Israel who will not be saved... Does that mean that God failed on his promises? And specifically, as we get into uh, verse 14, right, Paul's going to answer that question. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part that God refused to save some of Israel? And again, what's Paul's answer? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So for the Jews, there is this, there is this burning question, right? Why did God save some and not others? Doesn't, doesn't that seem unfair? Doesn't that mean that there's injustice on God's part? that he would save some and not others? And what does Paul say? He says, by no means. For he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he have compassion. The fact of the matter is, if God wanted to be fair, 
If God wanted to be fair, he'd send everybody to hell. Not one person would be saved. That would be fair. That would be true justice. But the fact of the matter is that he saves some. He determines to show mercy to some who deserve death. All of us deserve death. The wages of sin is death, and all men are sinners. We deserve to die, and yet God determines that I'm going to show mercy. So this is not injustice on God's part. And this begs a question, right, which Paul gets to in verse 19. Uh, you will say to me then, well, well, then why does he still find fault? And that's a fair question, right? If God's going to save some and not others, well, then how can he say it's their fault? It's God's fault. He didn't save them, right? That's the objection. It's God's fault. He should have saved them. So it's not my fault that I'm a sinner. It's God's fault for not saving me. And what is Paul's response? He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter, or has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So what's Paul's answer to the objection, right? It's a fair objection. Well, how can God find fault then? He saves some and not others. How does God find fault? Paul's answer, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I'm reminded of Job. In the book of Job, Job begins to question God. Like, how could you do this to me? Why would you do this? And God tells him, he says, brace yourself like a man because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to question you now and you will answer me. And what does God do? He just asks him a series of questions. Where were you when I made the earth? Where were you when I told the ocean? You can go this far but no farther. And that's, and that's the answer for anyone who has an objection to why God does what God does, is who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And as I mentioned, if we want fair, if we want just, then nobody gets saved. Everybody goes to hell. So why does God find mercy? Because he's God. That's the simple answer. That's Paul's simple answer. Because he's God. Because God in his mercy determines to save some. Who are we to question God or why God does things? All right, so moving on. So Paul explains why some will be saved and not others. He explains that God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. And as he moves into chapter 10, he tells us of God's grace in salvation. That salvation is not reached by the efforts of man, but it is all of God's grace. Again, we see that since it is all of grace, since salvation only comes by grace, right? It's not your ethnic heritage. It's not because you're a child of Abraham. It's also not by your external conformity to the law. It's not because of any work that you could do. It is only by grace that anyone is saved. Because of this, the gospel and message of salvation goes out to all people because it's only by grace. And then in chapter 11, Paul begins to address the question, well, what about Israel? Right, as I mentioned, Israel was given certain promises by God, and they occupied a special and unique position as a people, especially when compared to um, every other people group throughout history. So does all that just get thrown out the window um, now that Christ is here? Does, do any of those promises matter? And what we read in chapter 11 is that Israel has been cut off, and the Jews have been, or excuse me, the Gentiles have been grafted into God's plan of salvation. And he's telling, he's spe speaking specifically to these Gentiles. He says, you've been grafted in, though the Jews have been cut off. You've been grafted in, but don't boast, right? Because it's not the branch that feeds the root, but it's the root that feeds the branch. Again, we have been saved by God's grace. We have no standing. We have no reason to boast. It would have been, it would have been a temptation, right, for the Gentiles to say, well, the Jews, they've been cut off. That means we're, we're sitting kind of pretty right now as Gentiles. And God says, nah, uh, uh, you've been grafted in. And do not boast. But he also tells them that the Jews, if they, if they don't continue in their unbelief, if they turn back to God, they too can be grafted back in. And so these promises that were made to Israel are not null and void. The fact of the matter is, is that God's plan of salvation, which started with Israel, right, is being continued in the church, which is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so... Although the Jews have been cut off, right? 
It's not as though God paused his plan of salvation for Israel. No, God's plan of salvation is continuing through the true Israel, right? The true sons of Abraham, those who are children of promise by faith, who are born of the Spirit. And so God's plan of salvation is continuing, and those Jews can be grafted back in. And like I said, specifically in verse 23, he tells us that. He says, for if you were cut from what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted in, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural, gra- uh, natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So no, the promises made to Israel are not null and void. And those promises are made to the true Israel, which is God's church. But ethnic Israel still has hope if they turn and put their faith in Christ. And so we're going to kind of move very quickly. I'm a little bit behind the time. But that kind of concludes part one, right? Part one is just the doctrine. And I know that that was a lot of information. But as we move into chapter 12, right, we finish part one and we move into part two, which is the practical stuff. Okay, so what does that mean? What's the application here? So Paul has given us all this doctrine. And in uh, verse one of chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, right? You need to remember the old adage, right? Where there's a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for, right? Another way of saying therefore is to say, well, because of this, right? Paul is saying, because of this, well, because of what, right? Because of everything that came before, right? Because of this, because of everything, all of this doctrine that I've laid out in these first 11 chapters, because of this, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Our lives are supposed to be lived in submission to God. And they're supposed to be lived as, as, a, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing in His sight. So that means we're supposed to walk in obedience, right? Because of all this doctrine, this doctrine of the gospel that's laid out, we are to walk in obedience and we're to live our lives in submission to and in service of Christ Jesus. And in verses 9 through 12, which is the second half of chapter 12, he kind of gives us a real good picture of what Christian living looks like. He tells us, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In this section of verses, he's giving you, okay, this is what a good Christian looks like. This is what a true Christian looks like. And then as he moves into chapter 13, he kind of moves, from, from, uh, moves on from some kind of Christian conduct and into specifically, okay, what does it mean for you to be a citizen of a society? And he explains in verse 1 that we are to live in submission. We are supposed to live in submission to earthly authorities because every earthly authority has been raised up and appointed by God. Now, this includes every authority, right? And the scripture lays out for us kind of three areas of government. Does anyone know what those three areas are? Sort of three spheres, you could say, of government. Does anyone know what those three spheres are we have governing authorities? I'll give you a hint. We have civil government, right? Does anyone know the other two? No one? Anyone want to take a guess? Where do we have authorities? Parents, Parents, right? In the family, so there's one. So we have civil government, we have family. Where's the third one? Where else do we have authorities? Well, in the Bible, yes. But where do we have, like, human authorities, governing authorities? In In the church. Right? So we have those three spheres of government. We have the family, right? God has established authority in the family. Who are the authorities in the family? Parents, right? God has established authority in the church. Who are the authorities in the church? Your pastors, your elders, your deacons. And God has also established civil authority. And specifically in our context, who are our civil authorities? Mayors, representatives, elected officials, law enforcement, president, Congress, county governments, city governments, so on and so on and so forth. And so all of these areas of authority have been established and instituted by God. And because they have been instituted by God, we are to live in submission to these authorities. And we are to obey these authorities, but only insofar as they are not commanding us to sin or stepping outside of the God-ordained boundaries of their authority. For instance, okay, 
Um, who has been given authority to tell you what you can and cannot eat? Your parents, right? Your mom and dad can tell you, you can eat this and not that. God has given that authority to your parents. Now, what if, let's say the president said, everyone must eat steak for dinner. All right, steak's a good thing. Steak, actually, I would argue, is the best thing. But is the civil government, is the president allowed to do that? Has he been given that authority? He hasn't. Your parents have been given that authority. And so he's not, causing, he's not telling you to sin, right? He's not telling you to go, I'm, you know, I'm commanding that everyone disobey God, right? He's not doing that. He's actually telling you to do a good thing. But does he have the authority to tell you, to force you to do that thing? Absolutely not. He does not. That would be stepping outside of the boundaries of authority that God has placed upon him. Well, let's think about the flip side, right? Um, scripture lays out for us that the proper punishment for murder is the death penalty, right? Specifically, we read in Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So, Scripture lays out that the just and righteous punishment for murder is the death penalty. Now, let's say someone kills one of my family members. Somebody commits murder. They've unjustly taken an innocent life, an innocent image bearer of God. Is it right for me to read the Scriptures and go, hmm, God says that the death penalty is authorized for murderers. I'm going to go kill this guy. Has God given me that authority to kill somebody? He hasn't. And actually, in, Romans, or in, in chapter 13, actually, Paul specifically says that, right? He says, the, the um, governing authority, the rulers, they are God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, right? The civil government bears the sword. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God has given civil governments the authority to punish evil. He's given civil governments the authority to execute the death penalty against those who commit murder. But he hasn't given me that authority, right? So if I said, you know, hey, it's in accordance with Scripture, right? The murderers are supposed to die. But I don't have the authority to do it. That would be stepping outside the God-ordained boundaries of authority that he has set up for the family, for the church, and for civil government. And so, as I said, we are to obey all the governing authorities insofar as they do not command us to sin, right? If your parents tell you you're not allowed to go to church, you're not allowed to worship, you're not allowed to read your Bible, they can't tell you to do that. They're telling you, they're commanding you to sin. We're not supposed to obey commands to sin. Or if they step outside their God-ordained boundaries of authority, we're also not supposed to obey. And so, as Paul moves into chapter 14, <clears throat> he begins to address issues of conscience. Now, um, conscience cannot be contrary to God's law, right? I can't say, well, you know, I know the Bible says not to steal, but my conscience says that this car is mine, so I'm just going to take it. Right? I'm, I, hey, I'm just living according to my conscience. Right? We can't do that. Our conscience has to be subjected to the word of God. But where there are not explicit commands laid out in Scripture, um, uh, where there are not uh, explicit commands, God in his providence has left that up to individual conscience. So a good example of this is the consumption of alcohol, right? The Bible does not say that it's a sin to drink alcohol. Now, if you grew up in Baptist circles, you might think that that's what the Bible says, but that's actually not what it says. In fact, what the Bible says about alcohol is actually usually pretty good. And the Bible has actually a lot of glowing things to say about alcohol. Now, explicitly, the Bible does condemn drunkenness, right? It does tell you to avoid drunkenness. But it does not say that consumption of alcohol in and of itself is sin. But we all might differ on whether or not we should drink alcohol. And that is okay. That's what Paul's getting at here in chapter 14. There are some issues of conscience that are okay, and we're free to differ on those things. And we're not supposed to cause division when we do differ on those things. We're supposed to major on the major, major, majors, right? Justification by faith, the gospel, the person and work of Christ. But on the minors, we're supposed to let them be minor. So he says, right? Um, as for, uh, or, excuse me, starting in verse four, he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems the day better than the other, while the other esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. So, he's saying, some choose to observe certain feasts for certain days, certain festivals, and others don't, and that's fine. Some choose to eat, and they do so by faith, giving thanks to God, and they honor the Lord by eating. And others say, I'm not going to eat that. And they do so in honor of the Lord, giving thanks. And so, like I mentioned, alcohol. Some people drink alcohol. And they drink in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While some abstain from alcohol, and they abstain in honor of the Lord, and they give thanks to God. We are not to pass judgment on issues of individual conscience. Obviously, like I mentioned, your conscience cannot be contrary to God's word. Right? You can't say, well, I know God's word says I'm only supposed to have one wife, but my conscience tells me I should have eight wives. So I'm going to go ahead and have eight wives. Well, you don't get to do that. Your conscience has to be bound to the word of God. But in issues where the Bible does not give explicit commands, we are free to have differences. And the point, the whole point of Paul's argument is that the blood of Christ is strong enough to unite us. And that we should not be dividing over issues that are not stronger than the blood of Christ. If I have been covered by the blood of Christ and you have been covered by the blood of Christ, if we have doctrinal differences, that's okay because it's the same blood that covers us and unites us. So as I mentioned, all things must be done in obedience to God's word and they must be done in faith. And one of my favorite verses in um, the book of Romans comes in uh, chapter 14, verse 23. He says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if you're going to eat, eat by faith, giving thanks to God. If you're going to abstain, abstain by faith, giving thanks to God. If you're going to baptize your babies, baptize your babies by faith, giving thanks to God. And if you're going to only baptize adults, only baptize adults by faith, giving thanks to God. All things must be done in faith, and that which does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul addresses issues of conscience, and then finally in chapter 15, he makes his final appeal to the unity uh, to unity on the basis of Christ. We hear a lot of talk in our day about unity, but what is often absent is any sort of discussion about, uh, about what we will be unified. Will we be unified on the basis of our shared skin color? Will we be unified on the basis of our shared heritage? Will we be unified on the basis of our shared affinity for a particular football team? For Christians and for the church, the basis of our unity is the blood of Jesus. And there's nothing else. We're not free to divide over issues that the Bible does not tell us to divide over. We're not free to divide over things like college football teams or because uh, one person likes this but doesn't like that, because one person likes to eat these things but not those things. We're not free to, we're not free to, be, to have disunity based on those things because the blood of Christ is strong enough and the blood of Christ covers all of us. And then finally in the last part of chapter 15 and in chapter 16, Paul makes his final greetings and gives some final um, instructions. And that's the book of Romans in a nutshell. I know that was a lot. And I know that was kind of like drinking from a fire hose. Um, you know, in, in fact, I, I'm pretty sure several years ago, Pastor Tim did a series in the book of Romans, and I think it took him like eight years. So trying to do the entirety of the book of Romans in one night is a lot. And I know that we covered a lot, and we kind of bounced. It felt like we kind of bounced from thing to thing to thing. But as I mentioned, the book of Romans functions as a whole. And so if you want to understand the book of Romans, I encourage you to read it just from front to back, all the way through. Um, but at the end of the day, right, I would take us back to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. What's the point of the book of Romans? What's the point of Paul's letter? What's Paul getting at? What Paul is getting at is that it is the gospel of God, which is the power of, it is the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, and that the righteous shall live by faith. So the point of Paul's letter is the gospel. And it is only by faith that we will be saved. And so if there's anything you can take away from this book, it's that the gospel is central, 
And that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had. Lord, to study your word. Lord, to dig into what your word tells us about who you are and about what you've done to save your people. God, I know that we kind of went through a lot. And Lord, I pray that um, despite any flaws on my end, Lord, any flaws in the speaker, Lord, I pray that your word will take root in the heart of these students. Lord, I pray that they'd be encouraged to consult your word, to know more about who you are and what you've done to save us. And God, if there's any students here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would begin to work in them. Lord, that you give them a new heart so that they might be careful to walk according to your statutes and be careful to obey your rules. God, I pray that by the power of your gospel, Lord, you would bring those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to salvation. We thank you and praise you for all these things, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.